Have you ever found yourself in a social situation where everyone speaks English, but in the middle of that conversation, two people break off into another language that you don't understand? It's happened to me quite a few times. And frankly, it makes everyone else in the group a little uncomfortable because we don't know what's being said. Are they making fun of the rest of us? Are they upset over something? Have someone offended them? Is that why they've reverted to a language that we don't know? It's really hard to know since we don't know what they're saying. That's why it's considered somewhat discourteous to speak in a language in front of other people that they don't understand. And as discourteous as that might be, it makes even less sense to speak a language in front of other people that no one knows not even the person you're speaking to. At least in the first case, communication took place between two people. But in the second case, no communication has taken place at all. If I said to you, je voudrais manger quelque chose, unless you speak French, and if you do speak French, please forgive me for butchering the language (laughs) with my pronunciation. Nothing's been communicated there. Actually, I said I I would like something to eat. I would like to eat something. But unless you spoke French, that didn't mean anything to you. Nothing's been taught. Nothing's been learned. No one was edified. No one was benefited. Speaking without being understood means no communication has taken place. And if no communication's taken place, then what's the point? It's a waste of time. Maybe even an exercise in pride for the one doing the speaking. But if I should say something like, and then he's not here today, he'll be back next week, I think, but Dr. Will Johnson was to stand up after I said that, and he said, what Bruce just said in Koine Greek was, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Then communication has taken place, you see. Even though I might have spoken a language that you didn't understand, if someone was there to explain what that language meant, and communicate to you, then something good has happened. But if I just said, nothing has happened if you don't know that language, and the only thing that might have happened would be I built myself up to look like I'm just a little bit smarter than anybody else in the room. Or maybe even perhaps if we transport ourselves back into first century Corinth, a little bit more spiritual than anybody else in the room. If I should say the same thing in Russian, a language that I don't know, And then Dan, who also, as far as I know, doesn't know Russian, stood up and interprets what has been said. Then I think we would all agree that something really out of the ordinary would have happened then. If I don't speak the language, yet I'm speaking it, and Will doesn't speak the language either, yet he's interpreting it, then I think we would both have to say something miraculous took place then. But my point is, speaking in a language that no one in your audience understands unless there's someone there to interpret for you, is a waste of time. And that's going to be Paul's point in the first 19 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The Corinthians, as you hopefully know by now, had a problem with pride and selfishness, which had led to disunity in their local church. And it also had led to a damaged testimony for Jesus Christ. In chapter 13, Paul introduces them to a more excellent way. Love is the opposite of selfishness. If selfishness is the problem, what's the solution? The solution is not more selfishness, it's love. 
Love is an emotion that wills the highest and the best for someone else. It's, it's an emotion, but it's not simply an emotion. But we don't want to divorce love from its emotional component. But it's primarily an act of the will. It's a choice that we make to will the highest and the best for someone else. Paul describes it, and I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He describes it in a way that is almost unparalleled in literature. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, where he says, Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. Does not seek its own. You see, that's central to that passage. There's the lack of selfishness. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. These verses don't give us a definition of love per se, but it's an incredible description of love, a divinely inspired description of love. The last time you heard that outside of church must have been in a wedding ceremony. We use it all the time. I use it in the wedding ceremonies that I perform. But it's so much more than just a charge to a husband and wife in marriage. This was a charge to a church that was functioning in disunity because they were all selfish and they were all prideful. That's the original context. So when Paul says something like doesn't seek its own or is not provoked or doesn't take into account a wrong suffered, can you see how that might apply in a church context? Because we all wrong each other either purposely or by accident from time to time in a local church. You can't have this many people in one room and somebody not be offended about something. But love won't take offense. He then goes on in this chapter to compare love, which is permanent and never fails, by the way, and something that they weren't practicing, to three partial revelatory gifts, gifts of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, not permanent, and will one day, one day future to the writing of this letter, fade away. We found out in verse 10 that when completed revelation has come, the partial revelatory gifts were no longer necessary. And then as chapter 14 opens, he makes an application of what he taught in chapter 13. And this is key, because in chapter 14, we're, we're so in a rush to see what Paul has to say about tongues. Is it legitimate for today? What about this speaking in a heavenly language? Is it okay to pray in a heavenly language? Should I speak in tongues without an interpreter there? We're so quick and we're in such a rush to get to that that we miss the first two words in chapter 14 which is the key to understanding the rest of the chapter. Because the first two words of chapter 14 introduce the application, but they also follow up on what he said in principle in chapter 13. Pursue love. Pursue love. That's the answer. The Greek term dioko, which is translated pursue here, gives us a picture of a hunter chasing after his prey. It reminds me of those old... Mutual of Omaha, Wild Kingdom shows that we used to watch as a kid. Remember right before the NBA basketball games on ABC on Sunday afternoon. I always remember one of the opening scenes, there would be a lion in slow motion chasing after this African antelope. In the slow motion shots, you can see the muscles just rippling in this lion as he goes after dinner. Now, the lion's not killing his prey for grins. He's going after his prey because he's hungry and he wants to eat something. He wants to achieve maximum speed so that he can catch dinner for himself and for his family. That's the mental picture. That's the word Paul uses here to describe our attitude or what it should be 
toward love, toward willing the highest and the best for somebody else, toward thinking about the other guy for a change and not just ourselves. That's what they were doing in Corinth. They had the selfishness thing down. It's the selflessness that they needed to focus upon. So he doesn't use an ordinary word here. He uses a word of aggression. Love is not a nice idea to be practiced when it's convenient for us. It's a command of the Lord. We're to love one another as he loved us, and we're to pursue it like a lion chasing down his prey, sacrificially, selflessly, not selfishly. There's no selfishness in love. And there may be selfishness in the way some of us practice love, but it's not really love if there's selfishness there. And we're to pursue this love, this willing the highest and the best for somebody else, with the same intensity that a hunter pursues its prey, not for a trophy on the wall, but so hunger might be satisfied. He goes on to say, but be eager for the gifts of the Spirit, most particularly that you may prophesy. Now he's going to get into a comparison between prophecy and tongues in this chapter. But he doesn't do it before he sets the tone, the tone of pursuing love. Now, how do we pursue love? He's going to tell us in the rest of this chapter. At least he's going to tell us in a, with a specific reference to what was going on in Corinth. Now, we have to make our own application for today, and we can. It's not that hard to do. We need to make our own application for our local church. We need to make our own application between our spouses and between our, us and our children and between us and our friends. But we can see the principle here. Be eager. Pursue love. And New American Standard said, yet desire earnestly the spiritual gifts. Be eager for the gifts of the Spirit, most particularly that you may prophesy. By stressing the priority of the application of love, Paul is not disrespecting the spiritual gifts. We should be eager for them. The Corinthians should be eager for them. They are of the Spirit, after all. They are spiritual with a capital S, spiritual gifts. But in the process of eagerly desiring these gifts, Paul says we should at least the Corinthians should, desire prophecy. Well, why? Why would the Corinthians have a need to desire prophecy over tongues? And you may be asking yourself this today, because we said at the last two lessons, since prophecy, tongues, and knowledge were gifts that faded away with the completed canon of, with the completed canon of Scripture, why are we even talking about this? Well, there are several reasons. We're talking about it for one reason, because it's part of the Christian community today. We need to discuss it and see if what's going on in some localities is legitimate or not and we need to do it in love and not in meanness or not in arrogance or pride so that's something that needs to be discussed but we can see in the way that paul works this out how we might work out love in our own personal situations again in the local church with our spouses with our children with our friends because i got to tell you you may think you have a bunch of friends if your modus operandi in life is selfishness but i'm going to tell you something you really don't People may hang out with you for some reason because you can do something for them, but they're not really your buddy. People are not attracted to selfishness. They're attracted to selflessness. And when you have two people that are in a friendship or two people that are in a marriage or a whole bunch of people in a church that are both acting toward each other in selflessness, that's a dynamic that spirals upward. But if we're both acting in selfishness, it's a dynamic that goes down. And the Corinthians were in a downward dynamic at the time that Paul writes this. Why should we, or why should they, emphasize prophecy? 
In verse 2, because the person who speaks in a tongue does not communicate to human beings, but speaks to God. Now, this is a head-scratcher. Here's where we get our first clue that what was accepted as speaking in a tongue, or tongues, but more specifically a tongue singular, I'll go over that in a moment, in Corinth, was not the same action that occurred in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Tongues were originally the power of speaking supernaturally in a language, a known language, never learned by the speaker, that language being made intelligible to the listeners by means of the equally supernatural gift of interpretation. But that's not what we see in Corinth in chapter 14. It may have been legitimate at the time. It's highly debatable. But what was happening in Corinth was definitely not what happened on the day of Pentecost. We have to recognize that if we're ever going to understand what's going on in chapter 14. The way they were doing this, the way that Corinthians were speaking in a tongue, singular, was that of a person praying to God in an unknown language, or perhaps no language at all, some sort of babbling sounds. Now here's one thing that's going to help us to understand what's going on in chapter 14, and it's, it's technical, but, but track with me if you would. The term glossa, which is the Greek word for tongue, the literal tongue, or it's also the word for a language. When Paul uses this term glossa in the singular, he appears to be referring to some form of unintelligible speech. When he says they're speaking in a tongue singular, he appears to be referring to some unintelligible speech, not a known language, not what happened on the day of Pentecost. And that's the case in verse 2, verse 4, verse 13. Verse 19 and verse 26 of chapter 14. When he uses the word in the plural, when he talks about speaking in tongues, plural, he seems, or it seems clear, that he's referring to the gift as it was practiced on the day of Pentecost. The only exception may be in verse 27 of chapter 14, where it's a little bit more ambiguous, and we'll talk about that next week. Glossa in the singular, speaking in a tongue, singular was more akin to what Wayne House, who's been at our church before, identified in an article entitled Tongues and the Mystery Religions of Corinth, published a number of years ago in Bibsack, which is the Dallas Seminary Journal. House argued there that the Corinthians had incorporated certain ecstatic aspects of pagan mystery religions, the Greek pagan mystery religions, into the function of Christian worship. If House is correct... Paul may be arguing here against a perversion of the original gift as it was practiced at Pentecost. It's difficult to be dogmatic here, I'll admit that, but I think House was on to something. Whether this speaking in a tongue, singular, was legitimate or not, it was not edifying to the other members of the church. That's clear in this chapter. So it cannot or could not have been, by definition, a spiritual gift. Because remember chapter 12, verse 7, spiritual gifts were given for the common good. My spiritual gift was given for your benefit. Yours was given for my benefit. We all have one. And in a local church where, where we have a majority of people functioning consistently with their spiritual gifts, you're going to have a healthy local church, no matter what that gift is. But spiritual gifts are, are for the common good. And the way they were speaking in a tongue singular was, at least in their own mind, just between them and God. So it's not benefiting anybody else. So it's not, by definition, a spiritual gift. It may be something, but it wasn't a spiritual gift. Then in verses 2 through 5, for 
One who speaks in a tongue, singular, does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that all of you spoke in tongues, plural, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edification. Remember, the focus of the discussion here is the pursuit of love and the outworking of the spiritual gifts in the church. Those exercising the gift of prophecy were functioning, in a sense, like a pastor-teacher before the gift was really matured in the early church. Edification and growth are only going to take place when something's actually communicated. Those who are speaking in a tongue, or perhaps their adaptation of tongues, may have been, it's debatable, but they may have been edifying themselves, but we can say for sure they weren't edifying anybody else. If the goal of all of this is love, if we're to pursue love and edification, the building up of everybody else, not selfishness and disunity, then the focus of the church, Paul is saying, should be on something that builds everybody up. It shouldn't be on this babbling language that's just taking place between you and God. Whatever that may be, in the local church, the focus should be, in the early church, on the gift of prophecy, where, something, where a biblical truth was actually communicated. And we've talked about that in length, where a biblical truth is communicated before it's written down into Scripture. Look at verse 6. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, now he's mentioned, he's back to the plural, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Then in verses 7 through 13, Paul illustrates and stresses the truth. He said, yet even lifeless things, either a flute or a harp, in producing a sound, if they don't produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or the harp? There were some postmodern musicians in the early 60s, mid-60s, when postmodernism came to the United States, and they just started playing notes randomly. There were some artists that just started throwing paint up against the wall randomly, with no form. And I guess that, in, in a purely technical sense, that could be considered art, but whether it's good art, if, we could, if there is an objective standard, whether it's good music, it'd be hard to say that it's really good music. It was just random, and that's what Paul's saying here. Unless there's some structure to it, there's no real music that's taking place. For the bugle produces an indistinct sound. Who will prepare himself for battle? I guess they had those battle cries even back then. So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear. Now that's the literal tongue there. By the tongue speech that is clear. How would it be known what is spoken? For you'll be speaking into the air. Hence, it's a waste of time. There are perhaps a great many kind of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If, then, I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. To the Greek ear, the language of the non-Greeks was offensive. It almost sounded like this, bar, 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 bar. It didn't flow. It certainly wasn't the, didn't have the beauty of French or the cadence of, say, German it was just nonsense to their ears. And he said, listen, if, if nobody understands this, it's all going to all like sound to me like language of the barbarians, which makes no sense at all. In verse 12, So also, since you are zealous of the spiritual gifts, 
seek to abound for the edification of the church. Now, this is the same structure that we had in verse 1. But here, and some of your Bibles may have a footnote here. Here, Paul may be saying, since you are so into spirituality, maybe not the gifts so much, but since you're so into spirituality, seek to abound for the edification of the church. We should be building each other up here, not ourselves. It's not about any one of us. It's about Jesus Christ. That's who we came to honor today. And in the Corinthian church, that's who should have been honored. But you had certain individuals in the church that were doing whatever this was, and they were honoring themselves. They were building themselves up like they were something extremely spiritual or like a super spiritual person. And Paul's saying, let's take a time out on this for a minute. Let's back up and let's analyze this reasonably. Is anybody growing? Is anybody benefiting by this babbling? And the answer is no. Nobody was benefiting. Maybe not even the person themselves. Perhaps he's going to give them that in a moment, but maybe not even the person themselves. Then in verse 13, he says, Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Whatever the Corinthians were doing, and the debate could go on for months, so we won't have that right now, it was not benefiting the church. That debate is settled. We know that. And therefore, whatever they were doing with this speaking in this babbling language to God in prayer, and by the way, I know many of you came out of a background where this is practiced. I'm in no way trying to be offensive right now. Not at all. And I've preached this in foreign contexts where the vast majority of the audience were Pentecostal in their background. I appreciate that and, and I respect it. All I'm trying to do is, is just tell you what the passage says. And then you make your own mind up as to how you are going to apply it. Whatever was happening here, it was not benefiting the church. And so Paul's point is it wasn't love. And so it shouldn't be central to church life as it was apparently in Corinth. Then Paul goes on to say, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What's the outcome then? I shall pray with, my, with the spirit, and I shall pray with my mind also. I shall sing with the spirit, and I shall sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say, Amen at your giving of thanks, since he doesn't know what you're saying. If you're giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. Then he says, I thank God I speak tongues, plural, more than all of you. This was the gift as it was practiced on Pentecost. Paul is very familiar with it. And then verse 19 is so critical. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind that I may instruct others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. 10,000 was a very important number for Greeks back in those days. It was the highest number that they could think of. That's why when, when the scriptures will speak about how many angels there are, it will say 10,000 upon 10,000s, because that was the highest number. So what Paul's really saying here, I would rather speak just a sentence intelligibly than all the words in this babbling that you can possibly imagine. Go back to verse 14 for just a moment, and I, I know we have just a few moments left, but Hang there with me if you could. Verse 14 is conditional. Paul's not saying when I pray in a tongue, but if I were to pray in a tongue, singularly. Keeping track of the singulars and the plurals here. He says, my spirit prays, but my mind is disengaged. The spirit here being analogous to the immaterial part of man that's most often expressed in the emotion. Here's the problem. Some have taken this verse in isolation from the rest of the context, not just in chapter 14, but of all of 1 Corinthians, 
And they use it as motivation to pray in a tongue with their mind disengaged, as if it was some sort of more spiritual prayer. And and I've talked to people who engage in this, and they're well-meaning people. They're nice people. Nicer than I am, frankly. (laughs) Not nicer than you are, but nicer than I am. They're really great people. But that kind of prayer doesn't make you super spiritual. In fact, in the very next verse, in verse 14, Paul tells you that's not the way it ought to be. You don't just do it with your spirit or with this emotional component. You do it with your mind. And that goes for praying. And he also brings up singing too. And that means in Christian worship, we don't check our brains at the door. Now, that's not all we should bring in. And I think that's what, if I may, that's what I think has been a problem with the Bible church movement since it began. Long time ago. We, in some ways, were reacting to other movements. And I say we, a very corporate we, we've been reacting to other movements for so long that we say, all I want is the intellectual stimulation. Well, no, you bring your whole body through the door. You bring your mind, you bring your heart, you bring your will through the door. Don't leave any part of it outside. We could do better at that, I think, sometimes. Sometimes we try to wrap our emotions up so tight that nobody even knows we would have them. Well, that's not spirituality either. But that's not the Corinthian problem. The Corinthians were leaving their mind at the door and bringing only their emotions in. And that's not the right thing to do. Those are not super spiritual prayers. And again, I'm not saying this to be unkind, but that kind of prayer, according to Paul, is nonsense. Even if you're doing it privately at home. Why would you want to just pray with some babbling when you can actually communicate to God? Your thoughts. And listen, we do have an interpreter within the Trinity. The Holy Spirit interprets our prayers. But we're to to make the desires of our heart known to God. We're to give thanksgiving to God. We're to praise God in our prayers. If that's just babbling, nothing really has happened. Paul follows through with this hypothetical example, indicating that it's not the right thing to do. It's never beneficial to disengage the mind in worship. And that means in music, too. Music has an ability, just like art does any kind of art, I think, to get right straight through to the soul. We have to be very careful with the words that we sing. Because you put a good melody to those words, and they get right straight through any barrier that you could be putting up. Our mind needs to be engaged. Look at, look at verse 18 again as we close. Paul shifts it back to the plural tongues. He had plenty of experience in speaking in tongues as it was introduced on the day of Pentecost. But he goes back to the, to the singular in verse 19 where he puts the whole thing in perspective. This is the heart of the matter. What they were doing in the church, the way they were doing it, was not loving. It was not benefiting someone else. It was not willing the highest and the best for someone else. It was not building up the church. Praying in a tongue, singular, or in a static utterance, devoid of thinking, in a public forum, was not pursuing love, and thus should be avoided. According to verse 15, praying in a tongue, whether in public worship or privately, was unfruitful. And if it's unfruitful, it should be avoided. We need to engage both our mind and our heart in worship, whether it's private or whether it's corporate. The operative phrase, again, that governs this entire chapter comes at the very beginning of the first verse. Pursue 
love. Speaking without being understood means no communication has taken place. And if no communication has taken place, it's not the loving thing to do. And if it's not the loving thing to do, it sure ought not to be central in the practice of the local church. 